Last week we encountered a bit of a scary thought, but something which I suspect most of us already knew to be true. Not everybody that you're going to meet in church is actually a Christian. Going to church doesn't mean you're Christian any more than living in a garage means you're a motor car. And uh, my family did that for a while, lived in the, in the shed. Um, but, but it's so much easier for us to understand this when, when we see the contrasts of opposites that Paul draws for us. And the contrast that he showed us last week was the difference between those who walk according to the spirit as opposed to those who walk according to the flesh. To those who walk according to the spirit, well, the things of God are, are life and peace. And when the mind, but when the mind is set on the flesh, well, it's a mind which is hostile to God and the things of God to them are dead and they are spiritually dead. So for example, a mind that's set on the spirit will find worship alive and invigorating. Uh, and so, for example, today in, in singing, like I actually woke up this morning with a sore throat and a bit croaky and I've been telling myself now, Michael, you're not going to be able to sing because you've got to save your, your voice for the sermon. You can't sing. But as soon as we started worshipping God, I, I couldn't help it. I just, I just had to join in and sing. Even in the practice, I had to join in and sing. Um, so... A mind that is set on the spirit will find worship alive and invigorating, but a mind that's set on the flesh will always find it boring and dead, and I just wish it had come to an end already. When a person's mind is set on the spirit, they'll find that when they read the Bible, it comes alive to them. They delight in the revelation of of peace and truth and love, and, and it fills them with a glorious hope. But a mind that's set on the flesh can read those very same words in the Bible, and but to them it's just lifeless. It means nothing to them. It's irrelevant. They might even find those same words offensive and be things that, that make them angry. The mind that's set on the spirit will love to hear the gospel being preached. But when a person's mind is set on the flesh, they'll find a 10-minute sermon, puts them to sleep, And their minds will begin to wander in two minutes of prayer. Just because at some level a person believes in God, that doesn't mean that they're filled with the Spirit. And it certainly doesn't mean they're walking by the Spirit. And yet that is the defining mark of being a Christian, of being saved. To be filled with the Spirit of Christ. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Jesus. That is the simple, cutting truth. And if last week, after hearing that, you you were left feeling, well, I'm not sure that I'm filled with Christ. I'm not walking in the way of the Spirit and my mind is so set on things of the flesh. flesh, If you were left feeling that last week, well, if you haven't done so already, I hope you do some serious soul-searching and surrender, not, not only your life, but surrender your mind to Jesus Christ and ask him, Lord, take control of my life. I've been holding it back. Lord, take control of my life. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with Christ. And Christ, come alive in me. But whatever you do, don't give up. Don't just go, oh, I've been trying so long and I thought I was a Christian, but maybe I'm not. And don't, don't give up. Don't despair, because if you're feeling these things that I've just described, well, well, this is a sure and certain sign that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you. He is drawing you to God. 
In fact, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This is something we all have to experience. God drawing us to himself. And it's often accompanied by these feelings of inadequacy. Uh, The feelings, oh, I don't know that I'm yet right with God. There's something missing. My, My relationship with God is not what it should be. And if you're ever feeling that, you need to know that this is the Holy Spirit wanting to do a work in you. He is wanting to draw you deep into a deeper relationship with your Heavenly Father. You see, some of us, we're like, I hope you don't mind me using this as an example, Robin, but when we, when we, when we want to swim in the river, it's sort of like Robin sort of dips her toes in the water and, oh, I'm not sure I want to hop in. And then she, she might sort of go into the, to her knees and sort of paddle around. You know, some of us are like that with God. We just want to, with God or with church, we just want to dip our toes in the water a little bit and, and maybe paddle around and splash on the edges a little bit. But God wants us to dive right on in. You know, dive into God and just be immersed in Christ. Be filled with Christ. Because that's where the Lord is wanting to take us. So don't give up. Know that this is God doing his wonderful redemptive work in you. Your part, our part, is to set our mind on the spirit and to work with him. Don't work against him. Now, Having said that, this contrast of walking according to the spirit as opposed to walking according to the flesh, well, it's not intended as something that's that's supposed to make us question whether we're saved or not, although it does have that natural effect. Its purpose is actually quite the opposite. Uh, Its purpose is to give those of us who are Christians an unshakable assurance, an unshakable assurance that Jesus Christ is in my heart. That means... I am saved. It's an unshakable assurance that God loves us, that he's not going to desert us, and he is going to carry us through to when we'll actually be raised from the dead and be present with him in his glory. Because the fact that Jesus Christ is in our hearts is the sign of sonship. we, We often tend to think of our commitment that we make to God. What about the commitment that God makes to us? Uh, the commitment of adoption. Can you imagine any greater commitment? Imagine if you were to adopt a child. That's a big thing, isn't it? To adopt a child. At that point of adoption, that child becomes your child. Every bit as much as if it was one that was conceived and born to you. And um, there's something about children. I've sort of discovered you can't really take them back. Certainly not going to get a refund. Uh, uh, They don't come with any warranty. Uh, When they get sick or when they hurt their knees, you've still got to keep them. And um, even if they get sick or disabled, they are still your child and your responsibility because you've made that commitment. And our Heavenly Father has made that commitment to us. He has adopted us. When we give our hearts and lives to Jesus, when we repent of our sin and convert to Christ, our Heavenly Father adopts us as his sons. 
Now, I'm going to keep using the word sons. I hope there's nobody here that gets offended by that. But the reason for that is because biblically, it was the sons who inherit. The daughters didn't. Sorry, sorry, ladies, but that, that's the way it used to be when the Bible was written. And so it was the sons who inherited. And we, whether you're a man or a lady, a boy or a girl, if you're a Christian, you are a son of God. That means you have the full rights of an heir as a child of God. While we are willing to be God's children, he's committing to being our heavenly father. Verse 15 says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the original New Testament scrolls were written in Greek. I've told you that often enough. You all understand that? Yes? Okay. And it was written in Greek because Greek was the most universal written language of the day. Jesus, however, didn't speak in Greek. Did you know that? Jesus spoke in a language called Aramaic, uh, which was a sister language to Hebrew. Very close to it. And a very few times in the New Testament, the writers have been inspired by God to include the Aramaic word. And that's what we have here, the word Abba. Now, the word Abba would be one of the first words that parents would hear come from the lips of their baby. It's the equivalent of Dada. All right, so you can just Im- just imagine these Jesus's parents around him. Oh, come on! Yeah. And Joseph saying to Mary, "I think he just said Abba. I think he just said Abba." He says, "No, he said Mama. No, 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 no. He said Abba, Abba." All right. Now, by the time Jesus was born, the scribes were so terrified of misusing God's name, that they would never, ever even use it. God's name, Yahweh, or Jehovah, if you want to use the Germanized mixed-up version, uh, was something that they would never, ever pronounce from their lips, just in case they dishonoured God's name in some way and would have to be put to death. Okay, so they were so terrified of speaking God's name, they would never say it. Now, even our English versions of the Bible today are hangovers from that. In your Old Testament, wherever the word the Lord is written in all capitals, in the Hebrew, the word actually isn't the Lord. I've told you this before, but it's something that we we keep forgetting because it's not something that's before us all the time. The word is actually God's personal name, Yahweh. So if you notice, when you're reading your Old Testament, sometimes you'll see the word Lord written with a capital L, little O-R-D. But sometimes it'll be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So you can see an example there where they're all capitals. And I've written in the tetragram there, which means Yahweh. That's what's written, actually written in the Hebrew. God's actual name. So, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, this is where God is revealing himself to Moses, and Moses says, well, 
who are you? I mean, you're sending me to these people of Israel and they're going to say, well, who sent you? And, and God says, well, I am. Tell them, I am who I am has sent you. And then he says, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Right? We need to remember God's name is Yahweh. That is his actual name. Another example in Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8 says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And often you'll find God saying, my name is Yahweh. This is who I am. This is how I shall be known. This is my personal name. And if you want to begin having a deeper, more personal experience with God as you read your Old Testament, um, maybe you can start doing what we do at Men's Bible Study. Wherever you see the name, the Lord or God, written in all capitals, which is quite often in the Old Testament, very often, um, why don't you try just saying Yahweh, saying the name that God has revealed to us in the Scriptures. And yet, rather than using God's name, the scribes would refer to him as the Lord or God because they were so terrified of using his name incorrectly. But then along come Jesus. And one day, Jesus' disciples said to them, said to him, can you teach us to pray? He said, sure. And how did he teach us to pray? Our Father. Now, in Aramaic that Jesus was speaking, he probably said, Abba. Abba. What a revolution. No wonder they wanted to crucify him. They were too scared to even use God's personal name that he had revealed in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, you can call him Daddy. So we've been adopted as God's sons. Our relationship with him is such that we can call him Abba, Daddy. Now, I, I hope you don't, every time you hear that word Abba, go, Waterloo. Da, da, da. Um, Abba did not get there. Um, did, the Super Swedes didn't name their band with any religious reason. Uh, they, their name's just an acronym, acronym made up of their first names. Agnetha, Bjorn, uh, Benny and Anifried. So we're not praying to the super Swedes, okay? We're praying to our Heavenly Father. But let's come back to walking in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit because we want to walk in the footsteps of Abba. We want to walk in the footsteps of our loving Heavenly Father. It's, it's as simple as that. Verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as God's sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, sometimes it seems to be a bit of a discrepancy in the, in the New Testament. As, as Christians, should we consider ourselves slaves to Jesus or not? 
Because here we have Paul, he's the one who's writing this letter, and Paul often referred to himself as a slave. In fact, when he was introducing himself at the very start of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, slave of Jesus Christ. That's how he thought of himself. In chapter 6, he tells us that we were slaves to sin, but now we've become slaves to righteousness. And now Paul is saying we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And Jesus told his disciples that he didn't call them slaves because slaves don't know their master's business. Whereas he had revealed his business to his disciples. And so sometimes it seems like we should consider ourselves slaves to Jesus and yet other times not. So... How do we put that together? I believe the difference is slavery as a bondage, um, where slavery is something, you know, we're, we're beaten and whipped and held captive as slaves and forced to be slaves. But we're not slaves to Christ in that way. We actually choose to be slaves. And I believe verses 14 and 15 help us to understand what that looks like. There once was a time, that things are quite different now, generally, uh, but there once was a time where sons would stay home and work in the father's business. Uh, and, and you could almost say that they were slaves. They didn't work for a wage. They didn't accrue holidays or long service leave. They weren't accumulating superannuation or storing up a nest egg of their own so that, so that they could start out on their own. Their father would provide all that they needed to live on and when they got married, they'd provide them with some accommodation and that would be about all they'd get. And yet they would quite happily work like slaves in their father's business. Why would they do that? I'll tell you why. It's because they were sons. They were heirs. Everything the father had would one day be theirs. And so they joyfully worked as slaves on the farm or in the family business and they would work longer hours than those who were getting paid to do it. That They would take more care in the business than those who were getting paid to do it. No matter how menial the task, if they saw that something needed doing, well, they would get in and get it done because the father's business was their business and everything the father had would one day be theirs. Because they were heirs. Not so common anymore. Probably for two reasons. Sons want to have independence from their parents uh, and parents want to retire and relax and the family business often gets in the way of that. And so we choose to be slaves of Christ. Uh, We're not in the bondage of slavery to Christ. Walking in the spirit is willingly walking in the Father's footsteps because the Father's business is our business. We are heirs. We are joint heirs with the Son. And what's Christ going to inherit? Everything. Jesus inherits everything. And if we're joint heirs with with the Son, our inheritance is looking pretty good too, hey? Yeah, all right. So we're not unwilling slaves, nor are we afraid of God. And here we might find another discrepancy. 
In the Bible, we're often told to fear God. Uh, and it is right to fear God. Uh, but here we're being told that because we've been adopted as children of God, we shouldn't be afraid. Uh, that it's not to do with fear. So which is it? Are we to be afraid of God or not? Um, let me tell you a little story. When I was in primary school, maybe grade five or six, yes, it was last century for sure, um, we got a new school principal. His name was Mr Buckley. And Mr Buckley lived right next door to the school in the principal's residence. And his twin children, Andrew and Christine, I think were their names, were in my grade at school. And Andrew was in my class and he was one of my friends. Now, things were a little bit different in those days at school. Uh, in those times, the students would fear the principal. Uh, we weren't scared of him. Some people would be very scared of him. They would be terrified of him if they'd been mucking up and they were on their way up to the office. They were very scared of the principal, very scared of Mr Buckley because they were probably about to get three or four or five or six of his best. Um, and for those who don't know what that means, that's the cane slamming down across one's hand, which apparently hurts. I wouldn't know because I was a very good boy. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my mother next time she visits. I was a very, very good boy. But all students, whether they were good or whether they were bad, would fear the principal. We had a very healthy respect for Mr Buckley. We so feared him, though, that we would never consider playing a ball game anywhere near Mr Buckley's house. Why? Because if the ball ended up on the other side of the fence, it would be in, you guessed it, Mr Buckley's yard. Did people used to fear your father quite this much? No. No, I can't picture that. Um, because if the ball ended up in Mr Buckley's yard, what would we do? None of us would presume to go over into Mr Buckley's yard to get the ball back. Or worse still, what if it broke a window? That would be absolutely terrifying. Now, in that regard, it had gone beyond being a healthy fear and we were downright scared. So we just played somewhere else. But one day... I received an invitation to a birthday party. The principal's son, Andrew, had invited me to a party and guess where it was going to be? In the Buckley's backyard. Um, but it was okay, you see, because when I went to it, I was, I was with the son and I wasn't scared. I mean, I still feared Mr Buckley. I, I had a healthy respect for him. After all, he was my school principal. But I wasn't terrified of going to Mr Buckley's house anymore because I was with his son. We are only heirs. We are only adopted as God's son because we are in his son. We are with his son. We are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are heirs. We ourselves are adopted as God's sons. And we can never be disconnected from Christ and still be heirs of God. So we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But 
And, and because we're in Christ, we're not only with him in the blessings. You've got to take the good with the bad. You know that, hey? We're not only with Christ in the blessings. We're with Christ in the sufferings too. Verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now get this bit. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Walking by the Spirit doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. You know, some people get the idea that, that, that if everything's going bad and everything's going wrong and we've got a bit of suffering attached with our lives, well, that must be a sign of God's judgment on us. That, you know, we're obviously not in God's will. But the fact of the matter is, one of the marks of being a Christian is suffering. Now, you might hear a bit, a fair bit about this, this, um, prosperity theology where people say, oh, give your life to Jesus and everything's going to go well. That is so unbiblical. One of the marks of being a Christian is suffering. Children of God will be persecuted for their faith. I can promise you that. And that's completely in line with what Jesus said. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, and sometimes as a Christian, we might feel so disconnected from the world that it just seems like the world just hates us because we're Christians. Yeah, <laughs> don't be surprised by that. That's normal. And they did it to Jesus first. You know, often in our prayers, we thank God that we're not suffering. We thank God that we're not being persecuted. But I want you to know this. When we're persecuted because of the name of Jesus, we suffer with Jesus in order that we may also be glorified with him. Religionnews.com says this. With North Korea leading the way and Islamic extremism rapidly expanding, 2015 was the worst year in modern history for Christian persecution, according to a group tracking this issue. It says Iraq is in second place on Open Doors 2016 World Watch List, a ranking of the top 50 most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. It's the first of 35 countries on the list where Islamic extremism has risen to a level akin to ethnic cleansing, said the report released on Wednesday, January 13. Sometimes I go to the Open Doors website just to get a bit of a dose of reality uh, of what it's actually like to be a Christian in most of the world today and to give us a bit of an idea about what we should be praying for so that we can be praying for persecuted Christians for strength. Now, this story was, was on the Open Doors website this week. More than 1,000 people have been killed by Islamic militants in eastern DRC, that's the Democratic Republic of Congo, since October 2014, according to a local civil society organisation. A relatively unknown militant group 
has intensified attacks in the Democratic Republic of Congo, raising fears of the emergence of a new jihadist organisation in Central Africa. For years now, one of the various rebel groups operating there with a really big long name, I won't bother reading to you, has been trying to uproot Christians from the northeast area of the Republic of Congo through attacks, rape, looting, kidnap and murder on an almost weekly basis. At least 36 people were killed in the latest attack on Saturday night, August the 13th. That's, that's last Saturday, not last night, but a week earlier, in the village of Warangoma. 36 people were killed near Beni, the major town in the region. There have been reports of as many as 50 dead. Here's another story. Early in 2015, a French satirical magazine, Charlie Hebdo, published a controversial cartoon which triggered an attack on their office in Paris, France, where 11 people were killed. You, you all remember that? You all remember seeing that on the news? Yeah? Um, as two million people gathered in Paris in a peaceful show of national unity, the event sent, set off a ripple effect across the Muslim world including in Niger, where, where rioters lashed out at the closest thing they associated with the West. And what do you think that is? What's the closest thing that, that they could associate with the West? The church. The church. Rioters killed three Christians, burned and looted 76 churches and Christian institutions and 50 Christian homes. Open Doors field workers met with and supported many who were affected. Can you imagine that? Just because you're a Christian and some cartoonist over in a supposedly Christian country wrote a, wrote a cartoon that offended you, you think, I'm going to go and burn down those Christians' houses. Imagine that. Your home gets burned down just because you're a Christian. And this is the story of Pastor Capo. Not only was Pastor Capo's home burned to the ground, but his church was too. He explained the effect on his congregation. Our members have been so traumatised, they are so scared of coming to church. Their assumption is that these people could return to attack them. The number of people attending service has reduced by half. Right? So half the congregation couldn't just couldn't keep following Jesus, couldn't keep continue fellowshipping in his name because they're terrified. And then he continues, yet the Lord has also used the crisis to strengthen others. As Capo said, it is exciting to see some members making a stronger commitment to follow Jesus. Some have boldly declared that it is now that their Christianity has begun. Many Muslims in Niger did not agree with the attacks on Christians and are ashamed of what their brothers have done. Some tried to douse the flame started by other Muslims. Some took fleeing Christians into their midst. My neighbour, Pastor Capo says, who used to behave harshly towards us, became very sober and sympathetic. He came and pleaded with me not to be annoyed with him since those who committed these acts he believed were not true Muslims. A, a few days later, he came to my house again with his wife to accept Jesus Christ 
as their Lord and their Saviour. Who would have expected that out of this bad situation, our people would be so bold to come out and receive the good life, exclaimed Capo. Isn't that amazing? People would even become Christians when they see the way that that some Christians will just continue standing for Christ in the midst of persecution. When we pray, instead of praying, Lord, thank you that we can meet in freedom, why don't we start praying for those who are persecuted? Wouldn't it be better for those to pray for those who, well, it's really dangerous for them even to be Christians. It's really dangerous for them even to go to church. Wouldn't it be better for us to pray, Lord, give strength to those who meet together today in your name at the risk of their own lives. To pray, Lord, may they be witnesses for you. May they never deny you. And may they be filled with your spirit for strength and love. Wouldn't that be a better prayer? Christians are suffering every day for their faith. Why? Why would they go through it? Why did that part, what did that pastor mean when he said it is exciting to see some members making a stronger commitment to follow Jesus? Some have boldly declared that it is now that their Christianity has begun. Why would they, why would he say that? Tell you why. When we suffer for Christ, we suffer with Christ. And when we suffer with Christ, there is no greater assurance that we will be glorified in Christ. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And we're going to be talking more about that glory next week. Um, And you might actually be surprised what what some of this glory actually involves. Um, But that comes next week, so you'll just have to wait for then. But in Christ... We are children of God and our relationship with God is such that we cry out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy. And as his adopted children, we are heirs of the Father, joint heirs with the Son. Being in Christ, well, it is accompanied by suffering now. Our present reality might seem like a long time. It might seem like a hard time. But it's actually very short. Because as sons of God, we inherit eternity. And it's not going to be an eternity of troubles and hardships. It's a glorious inheritance. Uh, It's more wonderful than what you could ever possibly imagine. And so we can know for sure that we're not going to be left out of it because Christ is in us. And because Christ is in us, we walk by the Spirit. And if, and if God is our Heavenly Father, if we are adopted as his children, you're not going to get left out of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Abba, Daddy, Lord, we want to thank you that in Christ, through what Christ has done and through faith, You adopt us as your children. 
Lord, we want to thank you for that commitment that you've made to us, that even even as we go through times of trials and troubles and persecutions, we can have this utter assurance that you haven't forgotten about us. We have this utter assurance that we're not going to be stuck with this or left behind. You, Lord, are our Heavenly Father. And you have promised that because we're in Christ, we're heirs. We're joint heirs with the Son. Where Jesus goes, we go. Jesus is in glory. We will be in glory. To Christ will be given all things. And we're going to be a part of that in some way. Lord, what a privilege, what an honour. Lord, we want to thank you for this. And help us that as we are your children, help us to live as your children. Help us to walk in the step, footsteps of, of our Heavenly Father. May your ways become our ways, just as your eternity is our eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.